0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans guest is Professor Emeritus of International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh, Michael Brenner. Professor Brenner has challenged American activities in Ukraine and says that American dissent on Ukraine is dying in darkness. I'm joined by 10 of my classmates.
1: Uh, let's start with uh, Alden uh well classmate of most of these folks uh with the exception of spencer who's a little older than us um and um i now live in san mateo california just south of san francisco john and Liza.
2: oh okay we're both class of 63 i was glad to see from you i'm in ann arbor michigan where i've been doing writing and editing and eliza was at the institute for humanities here for a lot of years so let me go to peter right
3: i'm I'm an editor and writer in New Hampshire, and I know Austin well. My my son is a professor at UT, and uh, when Texas was going to secede from the union a few years ago, Austin declared they were gonna secede from Texas. I think we're all, uh, I think we probably all feel how in, in our country and in the world uh, things, have either gone back to how they were or they're, they haven't Im- improved as much as we hoped they were going to uh, at one point. So we're, we're looking forward to this discussion today. Good, Mason.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing my bit for international affairs by flying to Cuba tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I've got a duffel that's got about 35 pounds of fly fishing gear and about five pounds of powdered milk since I've read that they've got an acute shortage of milk in Cuba. And I suspect that will have about as much impact as buying carbon offsets to uh, offset my flight. But that's what I'm doing. All right. And I hope they let you back in. Let yeah, Me too. <laughs> so George Jones, I'm also in Ann Arbor. At this point, I'm wondering whether I need to go out and buy some body armor.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Spencer.
1: Uh, Yes. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm still a historian, writer, and still devoting my life for the last 35, 40 years to sustainable development to try to bring sanity and environmental future to our, and human future, most of all, because I think the problem is, lies with humanity, not with technology and and the environment.
0: Okay. Marcy.
4: In New York City on um, uh, working to counter disinformation and the rewriting of history, including in the media, um, on major resource allocation battles.
0: So now, Michael, uh, Professor Brenner, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And tell us about uh, your uh, the American descent on Ukraine is dying in
1: darkness. Well,
5: thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks. Thank you, uh, Ken. i really... Pleased to to join you. Uh, Why don't we begin by by sort of making a few kind of individual points in staccato fashion, and then we can talk uh, about the lines that that connect them and uh, um, fill out the, you know, fill out the picture. I think one, The uh, Ukraine crisis, and let's say the the crisis, the key reference dates are uh, March, February, March, uh, 2014, when we uh, had played an instrumental role in organizing the coup, which toppled the democratically fairly elected president of Ukraine, Uh, a coup, that's the the coup in which uh, uh, Victoria Nuland played the now notorious role of being there on the ground in in Maiden Square, handing out cookies and uh, helping to, to, to serve as liaison between the U.S. and the embassy ambassador and the leaders of the coup, prominent among them, being the sort of far far right ultra nationalists uh, militias, including the Azov Brigade, who are self uh, avowed self avowed uh, neo Nazis, not just fascists, but neo Nazis, and of course that has gotten really little attention in the American press and the Western press generally. But while it's people who do know the ins and outs of Ukrainian politics will tell you the, 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 their support, as it might be expressed, for example, in an election, would only be a very small fraction of the Ukrainian population. Although there are certain sympathies in Western Ukraine, which date back to World War II and before that to the austro Hungarian Empire and World War I, et etc, uh, they exercise a disproportionate influence because they have potent allies among uh, the oligarchs who they are the main player in Ukrainian uh, politics. They pretty much dominate and control the whole security apparatus. Uh, although the Azov and other, there are about four or five of them, similarly uh, constituted and oriented uh, militias, um, are a separate force, like the force fighting in which he surrendered in, in Mar- Marupio. No, I got the pronunciation wrong, you know what I'm referring to. Mariupol. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they are organizationally separate from the Ukrainian army. They are an elite force of their own, their own commander, who is captured there, which is, by the way, why the Kiev government tried so desperately to, to evacuate some of the people, because the Russians now have a guy who runs the whole operation. Countrywide, not just uh, you know the local section section of it, uh, they're like the SS was in their relationship to the Wehrmacht. In other words, these far right militias relate to the Ukrainian army in pretty much the same way. Uh, they have good relations, it's sad to say, with the United States government. They were among the elite groups which US Special Forces has been training since uh, 2018. Right. Uh, the United States government makes no effort to identify them. In fact, the official American policy is to say these guys don't exist. Well, they're totally marginal. The important thing is that their agenda is in effect the creation of a, whatever you want to call it, let's just call it ultra nationalist autocratic state. Uh, I'm not saying they're the only force in Ukraine and that there isn't latent Ukrainian nationalism, right? But they're a very potent force and over the past 15 months in particular, because the second reference date is February, March of last year, oddly that coincides uh, with the arrival of the Biden administration in Washington, which was no coincidence, which is no coincidence. And we'll get to that in, in a moment. Um, the other, so so, There are internal forces in Ukraine pushing in the same direction as has the United States. Uh, The difference is that for these Ukrainian ultranationalists, their obsession and preoccupation, of course, is with Ukraine. The United States at the highest levels to put it bluntly, doesn't give a damn about Ukrainians. Its target is Russia. And Ukraine from 2014 onward has been the occasion, not the cause, of the increasingly acute crisis that then broke out into hostility, threat, and eventually the the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Now, none of this is meant as a uh, as a defense brief for what the Russians did. I don't think it was a very good idea on that part, but it was a very complicated story and the reasons why they did it. I just don't think that, above all on humanitarian grounds, it is um, justifiable to launch a war whose main victims are, are civilians. Now, this context is absolutely essential. Understand what's happened and, 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 and where, we, where we stand. The, it's been a goal of the United States Really, since the end of the Cold War, to maintain its dominant position in world affairs, you know, the single superpower, the one who sort of sets the rules, uh, is the indispensable nation, and is unchallenged and unchallengeable unchallenge- on both the security, military, and economic plane, economically, especially for finance control of international finance by various direct and indirect means is really our economic trump card. Uh, we have faded as an industrial economy. The Chinese far surpass us in terms of industrial cap- capabilities. And now we're pretty much on a par with us in terms of, of high tech and well ahead of us in terms simply of of, of industrial manufacturing vol- volume and scope, all of this was laid out in the memorandum which was written by Paul Wolfowitz back when he was in the Defense Department in 1992 in March. If you want to get a sense as to what the crystallizing consensus behind American strategy generally has been since the end of the Cold War the place to start is with the Wolfowitz memorandum, which is public and, and available. With regard to, to Russia, Russia Russia's condition in the 1990s of being a debilitated state unraveling after the breakup of the U, U, USSR. Its economy crippled by sort of premature uh, reversion, well, it wasn't really a reversion, introduction of buccaneering capitalism, which was really theft of public assets on a grand scale. Uh, Russia was not a world power except for the nuclear weapons it possessed, and we wanted to keep it that way. It was also instinctively deferential to the United States as the diplomatic plane among Russian populist, favorable views of the United States predominated, despite the Cold War. I don't think we have never had any fight, much less a war with Russia once they voluntarily sold us Alaska. Uh, for uh, for we which we you know which we purchased for reasons I still don't understand. anyway, you know, uh, things began to change, of course, when Putin took over in 2000 and 2001. And Putin's dedication has been to restore, reconstitute the Russian state, because now it was Russia, although it had still has minorities, some of them substantial, it is no longer the, the multinational state that it was under the Russian Empire and then mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. He wanted to restore the economy, raise living standards, which had dropped drastically under Yeltsin, and to do so with guidance and direction from the, from the state. Uh, Russia un, under Putin never was and is not now a simple dictionary dictatorship. This is a cartoon vision and version of Putin, both as we the man, in my view, the man his thinking about Russia's place in the world and his foreign policy. Is, is it a, a perfect democracy in which particularly the rule of law is applied with impeccable fairness? No, uh, it does have reasonably fair elections. It does have formal legal procedures and uh, it's become in effect under Putin, what you might call, using the term broadly, a normal country, normal insofar as you don't have a czarist-like autocracy, normal insofar as you don't have a totarian sort of Soviet state, you have a moderately sort of authoritarian, Run by a not just one person, but led by a man of of extraordinary ability, whether you agree with everything he does and goes or not, a man who towers above anyone in the West in terms of intellect, historical sense, and political skill, which is why so many people from Bill from Obama onward and in Western Europe hate him. The encounter, the conflict, I think became inevitable insofar as the two broad worldview of Russia under Putin and the United States became diametrically opposed. The Wolfowitz view has become the prevailing uh, consensus among the United States foreign policy community in something I, I know personally of, knowing a number of these people and following it closely, on the Russian. And and, and, and one of the key objectives, of course, is to, is uh, as was underscored in the War for Witch memo, was to prevent any of the power from growing, strengthening itself to the point where it might now or any time in the foreseeable future, challenge American hegemony. And we thought, or began at some point in the late 90s, began to think of China in these terms, because its potential, and then of course, its enormous, unprecedented economic success, objectively, makes that the case. We also wanted to keep the Soviet Union, Russia, sorry, Uh, from establishing itself as a major European power with some influence in the Middle East as well. Because Russia historically has always been a power in the games of power politics, diplomatic and military play in Europe. Uh, If we move that forward a bit, as Russia began to revive, reconstitute itself, and to show much more sort of self-confidence and independence, as well as economic success, in under Putin. And that was accompanied by a very substantial deepening of economic ties between the European Union members, let's use that term as, as an umbrella term, and Russia. Not just in natural resources, because Russia, Russia, historically and certainly today, provides vital natural resources, which Western Europe doesn't have and never has had. Energy, now that coal is passé, that's oil, natural gas. Food is now the world's largest producer and exporter of grain. And it is absolutely essential to 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 the, the the well-being standards of living, as well as economic growth of Germany, France, Netherlands, you know, Britain, Bonnet, everybody else, Italy, especially in Europe, and there are all kinds of institutional ties across the board between. Western Europe and countries and institutions and the US too, and and the Russia. And this troubled the United States for for two reasons. One, it obviously sort of strengthened Russia to have all of these links, mutually beneficial as they were. Two, it weakened American dominance in Europe, in so far as dependence on Russian natural resources, uh, companion to the disappearance of any kind of security threat from the East, uh, meant that Europe's dependence on the US, financial, commercial, as well as security guarantees, began to sort of diminish. And the Europeans are so handicapped psychologically by this dependency, dominance, subordinate psychology, they've never really thought about exerting themselves on the international stage. And of course, institutionally, it's very hard to do through something like the European Union, which has 27 not terribly ambitious, but petty national governments. But the U.S. began to worry about that. So therefore, both in regard to Russia and in regard to Europe. Now, from the Russian perspective, uh, the Russian leadership began to see what was indeed an American strategy to keep Russia marginalized in European effect. And militarily, of course, this manifests itself in the expansion of NATO which really had no military or security justification because there was no threat. And what it was designed to do was to incorporate all of the old Soviet satellites, some of which had been part of the old Russian Empire, into the American-led and dominated sort of Western system. And as Russia strengthened and became more active internationally, as in Syria in 2015 right uh, this objective uh, became more uh, crisply defined and so a lot of, of, of thinking in the think tanks and the American foreign policy community went into the question of what we can do to ensure that forever after Russia, is put in its place and kept marginalized, right? And the Russians were very much aware of this. And they saw NATO expansion. They saw a number of other steps that we took, our breaking of arms control agreements, the placing of a missile defense system in Poland and Romania, which probably would never work, but theoretically could partially neutralize Soviet nuclear forces by hitting them at their takeoff stage and blah, blah, blah. All of this nuclear strategy is metaphysics. You know, I studied it for many years. It's not real, but it's on people's minds. Clash, in a way, was inevitable. Putin is not a one man show. This is another aspect of this sort of cartoon image. Of the Kremlin, that's not my view. I'm not a Russian specialist. Whether you are people who indeed do know Russia, yes, Putin dominates the scene in large part because of his extraordinary qualities and faculties, in part because the sort of strong leader tradition is well rooted in Russian political culture. And uh, because what he has done generally is respected. his current favorability ratings are 84 percent. Since he came to power in one role or another, it's never dropped below two-thirds. Right. So yes, he's offended There's a lot of opposition among the intellectual class of Moscow and St. Petersburg, for a variety of reasons, as many are legitimate, the true dedicated liberal Democrats. But for Russians, generally, he is viewed sort of you know, favorably. He does not rule in an arbitrary individual fashion. There is a whole circle of people, most of them in official positions, right? who constitute the executive government of Russia. And they meet regularly, and they discuss, and he's the first among equals, but he is not Stalin sitting at the head of the table. He's not Mussolini sitting at the head of the table. He's not even like all of the tin-pot dictators who were accustomed to viewing. And the last point on this was important to note that when it comes to dealings with the West, when it comes to addressing and responding to what is almost universally seen among Russian political elites as a Western American led strategy to keep Russia marginalized, weak, a non-player in European affairs, and uh, denied, any self-defined national interest, right? Uh when you go to views on those key, key questions, if you lay them out on a continuum from dove to hawk, Putin is and always has been towards the tough, dovish end of the continuum. That's a matter of fact. You don't have to take my word for it. Forget about who I am. I have no no particular authority or credibility. Just a guy who looks out the window as a tumbleweed. But those are facts. Now, when it came to Ukraine, as best we can reconstruct it, and I'll make this brief, the so-called neocons and the hard nationalists, the Victorian Newlands and the Blinkens, et cetera, all alumni, of first the Clinton and then the Obama administration. And all, in effect, devotees of the Wolfowitz worldview and strategy completely dominate the Biden administration. They hold every influential position, particularly strong in the State Department, National Security Council, the intelligence agencies. And with some sympathetic friends in the Pentagon. These true aggressive neocons, interestingly enough, are are relatively weaker in the Pentagon than any of the other great security organizations of the United States government. I mean, for simple reason, the Pentagon doesn't like to go to war you know, engage the U.S. military forces in stupid wars because they're the organization that gets hurt. They're the people, men whose people get killed and so on and so forth. But anyway, that that gets a bit more complicated. And apparently a decision was made in around in March of last year that something had to be done about... Russia's uppityness and the place to do it with the Ukraine, because there you had an outstanding dispute, you had a neuralgic issue of the Soviet, Soviet again, the Russian annexation of Crimea, which had never been part of Ukraine or considered Ukrainian or no Ukrainians, and Crimea anyway. It was an administrative deal on this Stalin decades ago. It had nothing to do with nationalism. Anyway, and the two breakaway Russian populated provinces of the Dunbar.
3: Right?
5: And the people, the ultra nationalists who ensconced themselves and then came to dominate politically in, Ky- in Kiev played on this issue to consolidate, to build up a sense of Ukrainian nationalism and to consolidate their own power. Because You gotta remember, in the administrative boundaries of of Ukraine, which hasn't been independent except for 15 months during the Russian Civil War, 30% of the population, or 25 or 30% identifies as being ethnically Russian. Come February of last year, you know, the Biden people want to really stick it to Russia and use Ukraine and the outstanding disputes over the Donbass and Crimea as a vehicle. We had been training and building up Ukrainian forces, thousands of American advisors on the ground since 1980. And apparently, the idea was, the plan was this. And a lot of this has been admitted in the bits and pieces, or if you have carefully read uh, printouts from news conferences in, in, in Washington, the idea was to, and there still had been, been intermittent artillery exchanges between the militias of the two breakaway Russian provinces in the Donbass and the Ukrainian army. And most, there were 14,000 Russian citizens of Donbass who were killed by Ukrainian artillery strikes between 1914 and 2021. Source, the UN, OECD, not Russian, sources. They knew the Russians would react. They had to and it would be impossible for any Russian leader or government not to, right? And then that would be needed. The concern was not to reconquer and restore the Donbass per se. The idea was to create an acute crisis with Russia of the kind of way you could accuse Russia of aggression. And the net effect, the hope would be threefold. One, a, 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 a division in Europe, unbridgeable between Russia and Western Europe, or the old Europe, which would sever, in effect, all of these integrative economic, financial, and cultural ties that have been developing over, over 30 years. In other words, Russia would be isolated and marginalized. Second goal would be The Europeans all be coming, running to the United States, say, what should we do? Can you help us? And we had in place plans for these drastic sanctions on Russia. And what we wanted was European unity in support of those sanctions and their implementation, even if it meant shooting themselves in the foot, actually shooting themselves in a more vital organ uh, by, by breaking off of the absolutely, essentially needed Russian natural gas, oil, and, and food. And the third goal, which was really the ultimate goal, but unrealistic, but in which many of these people apparently placed hope, was that a Russia that would be heavily sanctioned would see its economy collapse inflation take off, the ruble would go into free fall, people would rise up in the streets and they combined with some other forces in the Russian government, like some of the remaining oligarchs would kick out Putin and you have the best of all, all worlds. Of course, the only open question was how forcefully would the Russians respond to a provocation? And there was this press conference that Biden gave, and as, and he said as much. He said, if there's a war, he called it Russian aggression. If there is fighting in, in the Dunbar, if it's a major republic, a republic. If it's a major Russian reaction, we'll have no trouble. The Europeans will fall into line and the West will be united and so on. These were his words in public. And he said, if it's a minor military reaction, he said, these are his words, we'll have a fight within NATO as to how far to go with the sanctions because the Germans might resist the idea of a natural gas Cut off.
2: I you know all you, you pretty much laid out my own uh, uh, thinking and conclusions so I don't have any uh, critical questions really to to ask at this point this is why I've, this is I, I have the same feelings about the whole issue our news media <laughs> our public media is really is completely bankrupt on the Question, and that's a, a big problem we saw in Vietnam and uh, Iraq and some other places, at least after a while, there came to be uh, some critical coverage. But so far, um, their uh, critical views are being removed or prevented from even reaching the public, even reaching the podium. There's, there's no politician out there who's taking on the uh, Biden and the neocon, neoliberal consensus.
0: Let me go to Mason. Mason, you had a question.
1: Yeah, I was just uh, curious about uh, uh, a statement Dr. Brenner made earlier about Russia being sort of a normal society. I just finished reading a book called uh, uh, The Future is History by uh, Masha Genin, uh in which she described in some detail what appear to be uh, elections that are a total sham and a huge amount of political oppression of opponents and potential opponents. And I wonder how that jives with your assessment that they're a, a quote, normal society.
5: Well, a normal society, by that I use that term very broadly. When I say normal society, I don't mean, (coughs) it's like Norway, or even the United States, and we these days are far, far short of the ideal, I must say. Even people like Chas Freeman, retired ambassador, the man who was the official interpreter on Nixon's trip to Beijing, refers to the United States as, as post-constitutional. But let's leave that aside. That's gratuitous. That's gratuitous. Uh, normal, in a sense, yes, you have authority, certain mild elements. People are not arbitrarily picked up into the street, off the street and thrown into camps. There is no terror. You did have, very recently, media, which were quite free. You had newspapers and even television stations that would have guests critical of Putin. Now, they've tightened up on that since particularly since since the war broke out, There was probably more criticism, and I don't know Russia, again, I'm getting into some people, including somebody who who lives in There was more criticism in Russian media of Putin than there has been in the United States of the Biden administration's whole attitude and policy towards Russia, Ukraine, even China. The only people who raise questions about it are businessmen, who have interests there, and in, in here? American businessmen speak it quietly. The imagery is that of the Soviet Union, or of Imperial Russia. It is simply not that. It is not Saudi Arabia. It is not Kuwait. It's not like any of the many American satraps, which we have supported, encouraged, created coups for. It's more normal than Honduras, where we organize the crew that put the current bunch of thugs in power? So, I mean, that's that's really the the, the hypocritical element. The more important issue, though, is you you the one that you raised. And what are the implications of the system you have in place now in Russia and have had, let's say, under, under the Putin era? Uh, era? Is Russia expansionist and aggressive? No, it isn't. Let's look at the record. We were the ones who egged on the Georgian government in 2008 to attack Southern Ossetia, the disputed territory between Russia and Georgia. We did it. I know there's a U.S. Army major who had a year off spent at the University of Pittsburgh who helped organize the plans and told me all about them. The deputy director of the OSCE mission who I ran into and was living in Tbilisi. Everybody knew about it. But anyway, that's, again, gratuitous, and I apologize. There's has no, been no expansionism. If people would read what Putin actually writes and says, he has laid out in detail and in his whole conception of the international system of relations among states, the guidelines for dealings and so forth, and which are not only incredibly sophisticated, but is is, is not a manual, for world or regional domination. It's just, 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 just the opposite. People in Washington and read it. Somebody else I know, who I've known for 30 years, who was deputy head of the National Intelligence Council. Deputy head of the National Intelligence Council for four or five years. You know, that's the, the position that he worked on Clapper. God bless him. May Allah be merciful. He's never read that. You know, what what I think a guy like Putin would love to do, if you read it, right, is have an American president meeting somewhere, Moscow, Washington, Geneva, makes no difference, sit down and just say, Mr. Putin, what do you want? Or Mr. Xi, what do you want? What would you... Visualize your desired state of the world. We don't have anyone who's capable of doing that, who has the guts, who has the brains. We don't have a political class that's smart enough. So instead, we kick Anna Netrebko out of the Metropolitan Opera, and we put an embargo on Russian cats coming into the U.S. I mean, that's childish.
0: Well, Dr. Brennan, what do you see for the future? I mean, what do the tea leaves tell you about what we can expect in the next you know months or so?
5: Nobody knows. I mean, you know, you not just we, but you know, you one gets in. Sometimes one gets into such a such a total mess. I mean, this you know, there's the the You know, there's no way out. I mean, look at the Cleveland Browns for 20 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, they had more quarterbacks than we had military commanders in Afghanistan, which is (laughs) something. 18 straight. But I'm really indulging myself. No, we know what's going to happen. I mean, the Ukrainian army is about to crack in Dunbar, right? The Russians and the Allies, which means the militias from Luhansk and Donetsk, will take control of the entire Donbass. They probably could and will uh, seize a couple of other cities on the east bank of the Dnieper, which is sort of bombed. Baha Dunbas, or whatever you want to call it. What's that place called? I can't remember the name, Zaporizhka or Provolska, whatever. They might grab them too. And then they're going to annex them based on a referendum. Hmm. You know, he does hold, hold the whole referendum and they've been certified. Uh, as as kosher. I mean, Sweden and Finland joined NATO without any referendum whatsoever, speaking about normal countries. So the whole referendum, they'll get overwhelming positive votes, maybe not the 95% that they got in Crimea, but 70% whatever, they'll annex them. And then what do we do? And it's the US, the Europeans have been totally neutered. They have no political will, they're incapable of any independent thinking. Uh, and I know Europe quite well. I know these people, quite, quite many people there quite well. It's gonna be up to us, what are we gonna do? do Seems to me we've got two choices. Either one say, well, look, we achieved two of our objectives, We created an impenetrable divide and division, a new iron curtain between Russia and the rest of Europe. And given what's happened, particularly the rhetoric and the insults, et cetera, that's not gonna be overcome for generations.
0: All right, last question then, Alden, then we'll wrap it up.
1: Yeah, I just, uh... Wondering, uh, you're suggesting that uh, Pruden is very smart, which it certainly is, but it seems to me that he has made a fairly uh, stupid mistake in basing his economy pretty much on extractive industries uh, rather than building up other things. I mean, uh, in the bottom billion, Paul Collier suggests that extractive industries, just thats that's not the future. Did he make a mistake there or, or was that good?
5: Well, from what I understand, That picture needs to be qualified. Uh, Russia industrialization and advanced technology under the Soviet Union were sectorally specific, having to do with military. Apparently, it is greatly expanded. And the reason why the Russian economy has survived these draconian sanctions, among other reasons, it is simply more variegated and therefore more resilient than the geniuses and the CIA and National Security Council calculated.
3: Inflation, even inflation in Russia today is lower than what it is in Great Britain. Can I just make one comment? Could I make one comment? The, The Ukrainians apparently very much do not want to be a part of russia you know do not what they're some... fighting very they're fighting very hard and dying and and uh and they're they're uh facing some real atrocities troops troops really out of control well unless they're uh and and the ukrainians don't want to be part of russia so Russia may be a normal country, but Ukrainians want to have their own normal country. And they're fighting very hard for that.
5: Well, there are two, two important questions you raise: First, what is, what is the sentiment of ordinary Ukrainians? Right? First, Zelensky, this comedian, uh, got elected president, for two reasons. One, Ukrainians despised everybody else who was running. We pretend we we pretend to despise some of the guys running for president here, but we vote for them anyway. In, in Ukraine, they didn't vote for them. And he had the backing of a couple of very powerful, wealthy people, including Ukraine's chocolate magnet. Uh, a mysterious, well, two guys. One is a chocolate mag- magnet who became president and another guy who operates in the shadows like Goldman Sachs. You know. okay. The other thing was, you know what the key, keystone of his platform was? Reconciliation with Russia. And he was the only candidate in twenty, whenever nineteen, in the election of seven, who took that line, and he won overwhelmingly. What sentiment is today? I have no idea. I mean, obviously there is a sense of Ukrainian nationalism, which is strongest in the West, which was never part of, only briefly was part of the Russian Empire. It was also, it's Khaleesi. It was Austro-Hungarian for hundreds of years. It was ruled by the Poles for hundreds of years. They all three and the Germans slaughtered each other right up until 1945. Want to see a great film on that? Go to YouTube, the Polish film, go to YouTube and just type in hatred. That's the name of the film. It's trilingual, Polish, Ukrainian, and, and Russian. Which gives you a graphic picture of what it was like during World War II. Anyway, the farther east you go, the more Russianized. So you'd have to break that. Third, obviously, when you have a war like this and people getting killed, that crystallized center. Regarding the atrocities, that is very much in dispute as to who. Committed them, and again, well, I I'm do confused. not
4: agree with that, sir. I'm sorry.
5: Well, let's not get into that because it's very. It gets very detailed. All I'll say is, there are a lot of very independent, knowledgeable people, you know it, who believe that these were actions by the Ezzour brigade, particularly in that out outside. I do
4: not believe the video evidence supports that conclusion, sir.
5: The video evidence was taken four days after the atrocities supposedly were committed. In those four days, the mayor, Ukrainian mayor of that town, spoke publicly to the citizenry on numerous occasions and never mentioned the atrocities or the bodies that supposedly were lying in the street for three days.
4: We have had the most televised war in the world.
5: No we we'll not. You have... watch
4: your TV set to see these atrocities. No you don't. Before watching... your
5: eyes sir. What you're watching on TV is video provided by Ukraine, Ukrainian authority. Nobody goes to the other side. Nobody interviews people who might have a different experience. No, I don't know what happened. All I'm suggesting is it is by no means cut and dried. And it also has absolutely no motive.
4: There are is overwhelming evidence. Overwhelming evidence. You had a young man, 20 years of age, not just confess but apologize and admit to committing this atrocity. Well, that On TV. It was straightforward. There was no debate, no discussion.
5: That was, first of all, not in that town. You're talking by the killing of a civilian by one soldier. Yeah, and, and, and that's that, as serious as
4: anything you can get.
5: Yes, but well, no, I'm sorry. It's not as serious as anything you can do. If you have an organized command structure, which, which gives direction and instruction to your people to kill it as it's, that's different. And that's what happened in Odessa in 2014, when the Azov Nazis burned alive 40 Russian-speaking protesters in a the theater because they dared get out and said they opposed the coup.
4: And what evidence do you have for that?
5: Well, that's, that one is on the record.
4: Yes, and what evidence?
5: What evidence? Testimony, pictures.
4: documents. Perhaps we have the evidence that comes out of Russian television. No, it didn't come from but Russia. Straight it, you
5: know, there were no Russian government people there at the time.
4: Yeah.
5: No, look, so let's so not. Let's, let's, let's
4: get the evidence.
5: Well, I'll, I'll try and dig it up for you. Well, the one is, all I'm saying is, one, it's an aggression. Two, I don't know what happened. I don't think it is also the atrocity. And third, an atrocity committed by one Russian soldier, assuming that it was. Do you know of any war in which that sort of thing has incur- occurred? Do you know how many civilians, American troops in World War II, even in Europe, killed on that basis?
4: Is that relevant to what we're doing Yes, it is. Today? Yes, no, it not, is, not because you're ways,
5: saying, so. sir, because you're saying, Mr. Briscoe, you're saying one-
4: No, my name's David Allen, sir. Don't put that uh, on. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. sorry,
5: where are you? Oh, okay, I was looking at the wrong screen. Mr. Allen, first of all, you're saying that this is somehow rooted in the Russian character. Two, you're saying that this was a matter of policy, or conform to attitudes and policies. I did are, not say any
4: of that. So if you say words in my mouth that I did not say. Well, if
5: you're not saying that, then the individual act by one Russian soldier is no different than an American GI in Italy, France, Germany, or anyone else killing a civilian. Since because, I served
4: as an infantry officer during the were, Vietnam War, sir. I am too <laughs> intensely familiar with the issue.
0: Well, listen, folks. I think we're about to run out of time here. We'll have to kind of leave it uh, at this. And thank you so much for uh, Dr. Brenner for coming on. And we'll have to do it again.
5: Well, I'm sorry we, we we're ending on this sort of contentious contentious note, yeah. but I. Uh, you know, it's interesting that it's a feature of, of our, what do you want to call it, pub, political culture, public affairs culture. Right. That we right, think right. the best way to get to the truth is to, like in the courtroom, you have two sides, go at it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's sort of competition, uh, aiming to have their version of the truth.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, Dr. Brenner, I would say that you're one of the most, I think, probably the most interesting guests we've had. And I don't buy all of your uh, facts and interpretations, but I certainly will do more research and I thank you very much. Thank you so much.
4: And
5: well, I heard.
1: apologize for being late to the party. An emergency nailed me about no, no,
5: no, no, no one no before noon. No need to apologize at all. I mean, I think, I just think sort of more sitting around and Talking, not just by holding hands, but talking right. candidly okay. is, is highly desirable. Thank okay. you, again okay. for the Thank invitation. You. The nice things you said, you challenged my sense of superior modesty. Okay. That was Michael Brenner,
0: Professor Emeritus of International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.